There is no doubt the 19th Amendment was a milestone. When it was ratified in 1920, women in the United States won the right to vote. But the 19th Amendment did not flip the switch for women equally, and the struggle against voter suppression continued for decades, and in some cases, it still does. In this edition of Intersections, the RIT podcast, RIT Associate Professor of History Tamar Carroll and fourth-year student Anika Griffiths speak with Johns Hopkins University professor Martha S. Jones about the past, present, and future of voting rights and social justice in America. Martha, recently you joined us at RIT for our celebration of the 19th Amendment, Equal Rights and the Power of Voting, and you talked about your new book, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and insisted on equality for all. Can you tell us about your book and why this research is so important? Vanguard looks at uh, 200 years of African-American women's political history with a focus on uh, the road to voting rights, the long road to voting rights. It is a counter history um, to better known stories about Uh, places like Seneca Falls, New York, and figures like Susan Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and really looks at both the ideas and the activism of Black women who critique both racism and sexism in American politics and hold up that vision for American politics across a very long swath of time. It's a book that I hope helps us understand some of the 21st century Black women political leaders, putting those women in a historical context and situating them in the political movements out of which they emerged. In Vanguard, you discuss Ida B. Wells' struggle to win dignity for all humanity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the risks that Ida B. Wells and other women like her faced. Ida Wells um, was a uh, remarkably uh, courageous person, uh, but we know that precisely because she, like many Black women activists, faces violence and the threat of violence by virtue of their very public lives. Um, Ida Wells, in a sense, earns her first political stripe. Um, She's a teacher and she's traveling on a railroad car um, and is ejected from uh, her seat, a seat that the conductor um, is certain should be reserved to white women. Ida Wells not only gets into a scuffle, um, she sues and at least initially wins her case against the railroad company. And that really exemplifies um, the kinds of struggles that Black women faced across the 19th and the 20th century, which is the willingness, the latitude, the fact that white Americans, including railroad conductors and streetcar drivers and more, not only leveled a critique at them, for their political ambitions were willing to physically assault them in an effort to defeat that kind of vision that Ida Wells had for herself as an equal American. In terms of her vision of winning dignity for all humanity, I mean, clearly dignity includes being free from assault, but 
how would you describe your vision for what dignity for all human beings looks like today? Well, I think um, tragically, perhaps um, we still could speak directly to the interest in being free from arbitrary assault, violence, and more, um, that while um, the scenes have changed to, to some degree and the agents of violence um, have shifted, today we see violence oftentimes importantly and disturbingly perpetrated by state actors like police. This is an old story that we are living um, in the latest chapter of as we watch Black Americans be um, not only assaulted, but killed um, without any seeming recourse against the state. In the 19th century, Black Americans also faced that sort of violence, were subjected to that sort of violence. We still haven't, as a country, um, arrived at an alternative framework by which that kind of violence is no longer a part of our everyday lives. Just as the women that you write about are extremely courageous, so too are you in speaking out as a historian and a public intellectual. You are a member of the Association of Black Women Historians, and you note in Vanguard that that organization's mission includes, quote, excavating the past to promote well-being in our own time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that mission and how it has influenced you personally as a historian and a public intellectual? There are many things I have gained from the ABWH community, um, but perhaps the most important thing for me of late is the sense that I can and perhaps I should write Black women's history always from the perspective of Black women. And that will oftentimes mean that um, readers um, who came looking for Seneca Falls or came looking for the National Women's Party in a book about women's votes will be a little bit a C. And I do want to take care for those readers to guide them into my story. But um, as I think I always have in my work, I've tried to stay grounded in the perspectives, in the voices, in the experiences of the ideas um, of um, the Black women who are at, at the center of this history. And it turns out it makes for a di very different kind of history of women in the vote. Thank you, Martha. And now I'd like to introduce one of RIT's most amazing students, Anika Griffiths. Hi, Martha. I just want to say I'm so inspired by you. I mean, you've accomplished so much. And being a woman of color in a majority um, white institution, it is difficult sometimes to deal with um, the prejudice I face. And I can imagine that even you, as such a successful woman of color, um, have had to overcome the things that I'm going through right now. So I just want to ask, how have you been able to push through prejudice in your field to become like the successful researcher you are now? To the degree that I'm successful, it's because my first priority is the work. Whatever obstacles, confrontations, challenge and doubt I am inevitably going to confront, my best uh, response is the work that is understands its purpose, um, that is rigorous in its own terms, that aims to speak directly and um, incisively to other historians. And because I am a part of a 
community of Black women's historians, I always have a, a place to go um, when I encounter challenges, difficulties, and worse. I always have a community that not only shares my experience, shares its own kinds of strategies about how to weather those challenges. But my approach has always been to preserve a space in my own mind and in my own psyche for my work. And that is a satisfaction, no matter how it might be received. By the time I finish a piece of work, um, I already have my own satisfaction in having, you know, uncovered a mystery, answered a question, and contributed to my own communities of accountability. And that includes other Black women historians, that includes the women in my family, and that is enough. I just want to, I guess, bring the conversation to kind of center on the RIT campus. A group called RIT Voices was able to host a BLM rally um, where a lot of people were able to come together, do performances, and kind of just acknowledge the stressors that people of color have been experiencing. How does your research into the lives of such strong Black activists and advocates help to buttress the BLM movement? I mean, what can RIT students who are fighting in this national movement stand to gain from your research? There's a great deal of inspiration, I think, to be derived from the long history of Black women's political activism, to be up close um, and personal with women who faced tremendous adversity, to appreciate their commitment, to appreciate their resilience, to appreciate their tactics and strategies, to understand how they survive. Um, but I'll also say that I think that um, your question makes me want to take off my researcher's cap and, and, and talk as a member of a university community. And there are days, there are occasions, there are times in which I have to come to the table as a citizen, um, as a concerned member of the community, and to directly engage the 21st century questions that challenge our communities. At Johns Hopkins, I'm running a research initiative that's looking at the hard history of Johns Hopkins and the history of race and racism um, on our campus. And to do that, I'm spending a lot of time with student organizations learning about um, their work, but also learning about their care and their concerns and their aspirations. And I do that sort of as a researcher, but I come to that work also as a member of the community with a real investment in the real time possibilities for who we are and who we are to one another. So this kind of, I guess, engagement with looking into racial equity and how to address it, how to make it a reality, it's not only happening on the campus, but it is happening nationwide and also within the city of Rochester and Monroe County. And the mayor had put together a commission on race and structural equity, which I am lucky enough to be an intern on. And this commission is working to, quote, examine and develop policies and legislation to overcome systemic and institutional inequities within the city and county. How can your research contribute to the race commission's work? You talk about these women who have been pushing for generations for policy change. I mean, what does it mean to center these kind of voices in the work that the commission is doing? You know, part of my work on Vanguard was to take a long unflinching look at the role that anti-Black racism had 
played in the movement for women's votes in the 19th and 20th century. And I think that approach applies to our campuses as well as to our communities, to a city like Rochester. Historians have a role to play in helping a community to set aside myths, to set aside misunderstandings and more, and to produce histories that are the foundation of a kind of accounting um, for what are frequently long-standing um, historical wrongs that are still active in our own time. So I think that um, historians have a specific role to play, which is to help a community like Rochester. I visited Rochester. I know Rochester has you know, three or four stories it tells about itself. None of them confess very forthrightly the history of racism, inequality, police violence, and the other concerns that I imagine are animating the commission that you're working on. Um, so part of our work is to help a community to tell those histories and to look at it squarely. Now, I'm someone who believes in the power of those histories um, to if you will, clear the ground for new kinds of thinking. And at the same time, I'm somebody who believes in the power of the process of writing those histories um, to create less direct, but also very meaningful opportunities for conversation. So for me as a historian, when I arrive at the municipal archive in a city like Rochester, I'm eager to speak to the security guard who um, checks me in, um, to the clerk who retrieves the documents, um, to the person who operates the copy machine, um, not to mention the director of the archive or the library. Because I believe that the kind of work that you all are proposing to do is most difficult when we tackle it head on, um, but that there are many opportunities in the doing of the work to speak with people with very different stations and very different stakes in the debates in ways that are meaningful. So my work on a campus in part informs the way I think about your work, which is to say it is important to include everyone, um, to speak to everyone through every task as minor as setting up the tables for the meeting and rearranging the room to the actual authorship of a, a report or a piece of legislation. Every Everybody needs to be fully partnered in that work. Um, and we oftentimes overlook too many members of our communities in that work and think the only people that, that count are the people with the, the name commissioner um, or the like. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the RIT podcast, a production of RIT Marketing and Communications. To learn more about our university, go to www.rit.edu. And to hear more podcasts, subscribe to Intersections on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, or SoundCloud, or by visiting www.rit.edu slash news slash podcasts.